even the bread uh, evolution of the type of bread that we've eaten has changed in the past 80 years uh, based on the different flowers that we have got as aid. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows Friedman. Today we're going to be talking about the agriculture and food economy in Gaza. Recently, the price of bread in the Gaza Strip has risen several times in the last month, with the Ministry of Economy in Gaza accusing the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank of not exempting Gaza merchants from taxes imposed on wheat and importing flour like the merchants in the West Bank, which led to a rise in flour prices in Gaza from 97 shekels to 120, or about 36 US dollars. There is a fear amongst bakery owners that the prices of flour will continue to rise due to the situation in Ukraine as Palestinians, like much of the world, import flour from Russia and Ukraine. Joining us to talk about the agriculture economy under occupation and settler colonial land theft is Mohammed Abu Jayab. He is a small scale farmer and food sovereignty activist originally from Gaza and living in Utah. He's the co-founder of Om Suleiman Farm in Bilin in the West Bank. Mohammed is also working with the Al Baraka Wheat Mill in Jordan. Mohammed, so good to have you with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, Nora, for having me. So you were back in Gaza after many years, um, just a few months ago. Let's start by having you talk about the current state of the food economy and the wheat reserves and how it's all operating. Uh, in Gaza after, you know, 14 years of Israeli blockade. And, and what did you see uh, when you were there? Yeah, um, so I was there in January and um, the, the whole economy, especially like with, with the most important food stuff being uh, bread, you know, for Palestinians, as you would know, like Palestinians consume probably one of the highest levels um, of bread, like around 100 kg uh, kilograms a, a year um, per capita. And um, that puts them at a point where they would need a lot of uh, flour and wheat compared to the amount of lands that are available to them to plant uh, that amount. And um, particularly in Gaza, uh, the amount of uh, flour that is needed is probably uh, two-thirds supplied by the Anwar flour, uh, where most people get their flour through the rations that are distributed regularly through the Anwar. So uh, around 25% of the wheat consumption that happens in, uh, in the Palestinian uh, authority areas and so on goes to uh, Gaza Strip. And, uh, and that is broken down, yeah, roughly by uh, almost 10,000 uh, 10, tons monthly uh, from the Ottawa, and the rest uh, goes to uh, local mills that import wheat through uh, through places like uh, Karamabusel, and, and that's where the taxes are uh, levied on them uh, by the Palestinian Authority that is centered in Ramallah, and most of these taxes don't make it back to Gaza Strip. Uh, 
So the, in, the, in the recent period of time, especially after uh, the Corona period and after when you know uh, Ramadan has come around, when uh, the war in Ukraine uh, came around, where Ukraine is a place where uh, a lot of the Arab countries are dependent on imports from Ukraine, like Egypt, Lebanon, Libya, uh, Yemen, and so on, uh, and the Palestinian Authority actually. Uh, areas uh, ends up importing 90 to 95% of the flour uh, that is consumed that basically makes the bread that we have. Uh, we can probably talk more about the makeup of that flour and so on because the flour and wheat that was planted at one point in Palestine is very different than the flour that is imported or the flour that is brought in uh, by the analog. Um, so yeah, you end up basically with these bakeries selling this bundle of bread that ends up, so the price of bread um, for that bundle in Gaza Strip, for example, was two and a half shekels uh, for a period of time, then it became three, then the size of the bundle shrank a little bit, and then the price, so it's either the bundle that shrinks or the price goes up. Uh, to sort of you know compensate for these changes, um, but really the the problem seems to be compound. It's not only that we don't have enough lands uh, to plant you know enough uh, wheat or enough grains uh, in Gaza Strip and the West Bank combined actually. So mind you, like Gaza Strip has uh, very tiny space. Like if if we look at the statistics given. Uh, uh, by the agriculture ministers on, on the uh, planted area in, 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 in Palestine, which three quarters of it end up being perennial uh, because of multiple as well political reasons. Um, but basically the area that ends up being annually cropped that could be dedicated for something like planting wheat and so on is roughly 340 kilometers squares, which is almost the size of the Jerusalem area, a little bit smaller than the size of Gaza Strip. Um, Gaza Strip has like a very tiny portion of that land, um, which is put at around 190,000 domes after the Israelis have evacuated uh, some of the settlements there. And that land is um, roughly one fifth or one sixth of the lands that were basically planted by the same size of the same population pre-48 in Palestine. So you can imagine like how, how very few lands are available for this. So Palestinians tend to go towards uh, planting cash crops. And you know, uh, cash crops, uh, especially vegetables, flowers, uh, strawberries, watermelon, you know, these things that are, that eventually have a sort of cash, you know, uh, uh, outcome compared to something like planting wheat and so on that requires multiple stages of going through processing, going through milling and going through baking. Uh, and most of the time farmers are not involved in that, you know, uh, supply chain. So they tend to prefer uh, that, but at the same time, because the entire Gaza Strip's economy has been attached to Israel's economy that actually operates in the same way. Uh, if you look at the way, uh, the distribution of cropping lands and vegetables and uh, uh, flowers and so on in uh, in Israel, you'll find it very similar to what is happening in uh, the Palestinian areas with with the opposite distribution. So 
most of the lands, uh, 80% or so of the lands in Israel are dedicated for annual agriculture. So they, there is space for cropping, uh, uh, for annual cropping in these lands within 48. Uh, but if we're going just, you know, rolling back uh, the conversation to, to Gaza Strip, uh, uh, so yeah, we end up with this situation where there's uh, very limited access to land, but as well, there is another angle that is uh, social, you know, that is attached to that half of the population of Gaza Strip is refugees, and they mostly don't have access to these, to the cropping lands and Beit Hanun, Beit Lahia. And, and unfortunately, we have a lot of stories that sort of play back sort of things and social things and interactions that we have faced and have seen as refugees coming into the Gaza Strip and people who live there saying like, hey, stay away from us or in a sort of, in a sort of way, the, the, the sort of classism that gets, that, that, uh, that broods, you know, under conditions of occupation settler colonialism. And that's not necessarily what would uh, ban out or what hap what would happen basically under normal conditions, but when you know when when these things happen and like mass uh, expulsion ex ex expelling of Palestinians happening, uh, you know other things that sidebars of like social stratifications and so on get created. So you end up with basically most descendants of these Falahin folks that have actually traditionally grown uh, food stuff like wheat and so on in Palestine. Uh, traditionally, we've grown 60% of our crops uh, where field crops uh, like wheat and barley, millet, uh, sorghum, and so on. Um, yeah, so you end up basically in, in, in Gaza Strip, we have no access to these lands and so on. Um, and the uh, economic situation and attachment to Israel being even either a dumping ground for the extra crops that Israel has, or basically a supply chain the other way around, if there is any uh, gap in the production of Israel, they would basically pull it back from Gaza Strip. Um, so yeah, you end up basically having to import 95% um, of the flour, like Palestinian economy requires 650,000 pounds roughly of uh, flour that uh, gets mostly imported, 25% of that is consumed in Gaza Strip. Um, and as I said, two thirds of that is provided by the other uh, as flour. So the other or the rest of the chunks, and you could actually take your sack of flour to a bakery in Gaza Strip and get like these little coupons and so on that you can buy, uh, you know, exchange uh, for bread from these bakeries. But we're talking about bread that we end up, even the bread uh, evolution, like the type of bread that we've eaten has changed in the past 80 years. Uh, based on the different flowers that we have gotten as aid um, that is very different uh, in comparison to the flower and the wheat that was planted that was high protein wheat that usually was augmented with other things like wheat, so augmented with barley or millet or other things. Uh, uh, and that was part of the ecosystem of how things were growing. And, uh, if we had a, ch we had a chance, maybe we can talk more about like how that sort of these crops come together uh, to make bread and how their, you know, their role in the ecology, uh, uh, role like for crops like grains like wheat and barley and millet and so on. So I, yeah, I hope that gives like an overview of how, uh, 
you know, how we end up basically consuming this, uh, we call it kmaj or, or pita bread, whatever it is that is very, very different than the baboon or the saws that we used to consume pre, you know, uh, pre-48. Uh, with, with very different nutritional uh, profile, uh, uh, with mainly soft wheat uh, being the main component, which is mostly a pastry flour, actually, not um, mm. bread flour. Uh, has very low protein, around 10% or lower. Uh, and 90% of that, uh, sorry, actually 75% of that is imported as flour. So it's milled somewhere else and is brought in. And the agriculture ministry says, or basically puts the reason for that being uh, that we don't have silos to actually store wheat. Because a flour sack stores very differently than wheat, uh, has a shorter period of time to, to store and sort of the old purpose wheat where you have to remove the bran, other things could store longer, but the value, the nutritional value drops. So we end up basically with bigger part of the supply chain uh, being done somewhere else. And then we are uh, a bigger chunk of the price as well being uh, pegged somewhere else instead of having mills locally that could uh, actually bring in part of the supply chain and actually uh, reduce the costs potentially. Give us kind of a snapshot of what, um, Palestine's wheat uh, industry, the agriculture economy looked like um, before 1948. Where were the, the, you know, the, the most arable lands, fertile lands for the wheat crops? And, um, you know, how, yeah, talk a little bit more about like how that's changed. Yeah, absolutely. Like um, one of the, surprising facts for some people because there's a lot of these statistics and so on. Sometimes they're utilized for political reasons and so on by Israelis and so on. The lands roughly that were planted pre-48 are almost the same as the lands that are planted today, like around 430, 420,000 hectares. And, um, and uh, these lands, and this is very important in every settler colonial uh, sort of project to actually realize and see whether in the US here or in Palestine that uh, the settler colonials, most of them when they come, like whether being Zionist to Palestine or uh, Europeans to the US, most of them didn't have the capacity to deal with an empty Palestine or an empty or wilderness in the US. Uh, most of them um, had the capacity to take over agricultural lands and utilize it uh, for future agriculture. And this is, you know, this is what comes the reality, like when you look or basically see the size of the lands that we're talking about, they're almost the, exactly the same. And if we look at the projects that Israel has attempted to actually expand lands or change the ecosystem, We've seen um, disasters, uh, like ecosystem or ecological disasters, like the drying of the Hola marshes, uh, like uh, the the huge cost of uh, making the desert bloom, quote unquote. That actually these projects that never actually worked out or panned out. 
the old the older forestation and the con uh, the consequences of fires that came because of all these forestation projects. Uh, so uh, cropping and farming in Palestine and and like in 1948, 50% uh, of Palestinians were working in agriculture in a way or another. Um, and, and, and a lot, it's, it's distributed mostly like my family comes from the coastal plains north to Gaza uh, from a village called Yasur. Uh, adjacent to Asdud, uh, it's a little town, now it's a port uh, on, on the Mediterranean. Uh, so that's a chunk basically of like people that, and, and most of refugees were displaced from these areas. And uh, actually we're talking about the beginning of June. So we're, while well, we're recording this in the beginning of June, it's very important to remember actually the wheat harvest came around this, this period of time. Uh, so when when these lands were taken over, the wheat harvest was either done and stored, or still standing, waiting to be harvested. Uh, and these are things that often are overlooked in the inception of Israel. That period of time, it was dependent on Pal not only Palestinian lands but Palestinian crops, Palestinian crops that were already planted, like even wheat. Uh, for a period of time, like in the 50s, where Israel, like the income or like foreign currencies came into Israel, uh, almost only 15% was through Israel, like local economy, and the rest came from foreign money being sent through the US and other entities. And that 15%, a big chunk of it was because of oranges, the Yafa oranges or the olives, you know. So uh, Israel is economy dependent on the results of the cropping systems uh, that uh, Palestinians have created. But basically 60% of these lands pre-48 were uh, field crops. Uh, half of them were uh, wheat uh, most of the time and the other half is barley. And it's important because barley now makes up uh, almost 1% of the crops that are planted in Palestine. Barley is a very important crop in the Palestinian context uh, or the regional context as a crop that has a capacity to reduce the salination in the soil, that has a capacity to survive in lesser uh, ideal uh, environment, uh, whether you know, in, in, in terms of lower rains and so on. Another crop that completely disappeared in Palestinian food stuff is millet, uh, where millet was one of the important uh, crops, summer crops uh, that were planted has a shorter period of time and so on. Um, but we've planted it for thousands of years and now completely disappeared uh, because it has almost no, no cash value when you sell it, right? But it has a very important value in sorghum, like zura we call it, which is, uh, what we call corn, the white corn, um, where very important summer crops that sort of, you know, so that distribution, yeah, even the grains, uh, the grains that we planted and so on, the distribution, there wasn't a monoculture, it was different crops. Like if it was a good rainy year, you'll have a good wheat crop. If you have a bad rainy year, you'll have a good barley crop. Uh, and in the summer as well, you'll have these, you know, other crops that would augment and 
you know, make things like karadish and so on, the type of breads that we have. We're still eating, but we are planting a very few amounts of. So yeah, vegetables made five to six percent, roughly, of the uh, of the lands that were planted, and. Uh, it's important that crops like sesame and other things that uh, we now, like after a period of time um, since 48, the amount of lands, uh, let's say oil crop, uh, olive oil became a replacement for sesame oil. Well, sesame was actually the very, like the number one uh, oil, oil crop used in Palestine. This is why we call it tahine, you know, which is the feminine Virgin of Tahin, which is flour. So it goes hand in hand in how important uh, it is. But like, and this actually the transition, because most of these lands that we're talking about, the cropping lands and so on, including if I look at statistics of the village that my family is from and so on, most of the lands cropped were uh, annual crops. Uh, and most of the villages where you know, the land was held together in a mashah system. Uh, and that came to change since 1858 where the Tabu laws came in uh, by the Ottomans. And, but even by the 1930s, you know, after the, when the British were around and so on, most of the villages were still, or the land in the villages were held in this common social system. The mashah system is like everybody owns the land of the village. And then there's these shares that get distributed differently and people get these pieces of land in separate parts to actually create a sort of balance of what kind of lands you get every couple of years uh, and it gets redistributed uh, uh, every like periodically. So that actually created, and actually most of the literature, uh, not surprisingly, criticizes this Mashiach system. Even uh, amazing researchers like Shukri Afaf and so on, they actually criticize the Masha system and they blame it for degrading, quote unquote, the lands uh, that are planted. But if you look at the other facts, where basically the Fallahin, like the whole agricultural system, the Fallahin, where was a closed loop system where it has very little, if any, inputs, has zero inputs roughly. Uh, and uh, basically, yes, it had lower yields compared to if we compare to the fields today, but had no inputs, had very balanced ecological impact on the surroundings uh, and created a very strong social bond that made villagers act collectively, defend their land collectively and see you know, each other in that common social uh, uh, loom that was sort of weaved by that Michelle system. When the British came and so on, they had the surveillance capacity to sort of fragment and break apart these lands. And actually, since the 1858, the Pablo by the Ottomans were created all through to the, uh, to the British, you'll see the increase of other types of cropping, uh, like trees and like, you know, that was the ascension or like when, when, when crops like uh, oranges and Yafa oranges became popular because not only settlers, Zionist settlers were buying chunks of lands to plant with uh, uh, these, these orchards. And it's, it was very hard to find in a village somebody to sell you a part of land. But like the, when the lands were broken and were categorized, uh, 
a lot of the trusts that were basically, they're not public and they're not private, they're held in common. Um, the British sort of broke it in a more simplistic system. Like these are private lands and these are lands that could be sold. And then that's where a lot of these lands, you know, a lot is a very qualifiable word and so on, but these guys, a good chunk of these lands were being bought by Zionists and create orchards were created where a lot of capital was needed to be put into these orchards and that money was, you know, or that these crops were to be sold somewhere else. So where there were more of like a system that turned, well, a falah system or a village system was sort of a sort of space making or place making, you know, that continuous, you continue to be in a place and you continue to take care of it. These orchards became a sort of turning soil and fertility into liquidity, into cash. And these, this is a summary of like settler colonial farming systems, even the US where you find like in the prairies when you had meters worth of topsoil and they were depleted to like 0.5 or 1% of organic matter now. So, so we're, you know, this is, these are the, the sort of social and maybe land-based and we're talking about areas that were coastal plains or areas in Medjugorje in the uh, Galil area in the mid-north or areas that often get forgotten that were uh, cropped in Be'ez Seba. Uh, and this is actually the importance of Gaza Strip being an intersection between two very important areas, which is like Be'ez Seba and Gaza. And sort of, you'll be surprised if you turn the map of Palestine upside down and actually read it through south onwards, instead of the center-centric sort of, because of Jerusalem being in the middle and because of you know, being in the middle and its importance, we tend to see Palestine from center and north-centric views, but you will see a very different Palestine, a very different history, social and economic and ecologic, once you turn the map upside down, actually read it from a Sabah onward. So a good amount of the cropping uh, in, in uh, wheat cropping is going to happen in Seba. You actually see that in now, if you go to Jordan, a good amount of the people that do farming and so on in Jordan are from Seba originally, from Be'er Seba, but then, you know, and yes, some of them like uh, Saide and other people that are in Gaza Strip, they still work in farming and have very old traditions of farming, but farming that lives at the intersection of Bedouin and farming life. And you will find that more common in Jordan as well. Like it's a, so you'll see that sort of geographic continuity, even foods like the arbud and so on, that you will see the bread that is made on the uh, on the ashes. You'll find it being made in Jordan. You'll find it made in the southern Gaza Strip. You'll find it made in Sinai too. So I feel like this is the sort of overview of the agricultural social uh, context uh, for farming. Thanks, Mohammed. Yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating, and you know, people always talk about food sovereignty, and you know, um, but but what does food sovereignty mean when the the most fertile lands have been stolen, when farmers in Gaza, you know, their, their crops are shrinking. Um, you know, all the time, um, 
because of you know Israel's encroachment um, on their lands. The the so-called you know buffer zone um, keeps expanding, um, and and the economy is in a stranglehold by what Israel allows Gaza farmers and agricultural producers to export, um, if they can even do that at all. What what is your definition of food sovereignty when it comes to Gaza in particular, but but also um, for Palestinians in the West Bank, um, who have you know similar uh, restrictions, but um, but possibly more land. Um, what does it mean? What does food sovereignty even look like? How do we even begin to talk about that? Yeah, unfortunately, when we talk about food sovereignty and so on, a lot of people's like minds or thoughts around it, especially in the U.S., have been framed around the food sustainability movement, in a sense. Right. And the, most of the food sustainability movement uh, is really a white settler colonial construct uh, that probably is similar to the you know making the desert bloom or you know forestation projects in Palestine. So we sort of want to steer away from this, maybe sometimes defining something by saying what it is not is very important. Um, so when we steer a little bit away from it, we're talking about basically the capacity to decide uh, on what foods are important to you and plant these foods and consume these foods in ways that are socially, uh, economically and ecologically viable for your context. And that's what's important to sort of see in the context of Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And, um, and honestly, this is the harder, like when I visited, uh, just to give a context as part of my work in, uh, in, in Palestine has been 2015, 2016, working in Amsterdam Farm in Belay, starting it. When I uh, visited back Gaza Strip, uh, what I had a frame of in, in, in my mind was like, okay, we're gonna take the model that we have at hand and sort of try to find through that blueprint, uh, you know, a context for the work in, in Gaza Strip. And we've been searching for basically an ideal, you know, ecologic, social and economic intersection where we can actually operate, you know, maybe a consumer co-op was a good starting point for us in Gaza Strip. But what astonished me when I went uh, after 10 years of I've been regularly, you know, going back to visit family and so on, but I wasn't able to. Uh, uh, and when I uh, when I was there, I just realized that, especially Gaza Strip, like at the moment that it is today, it is basically creating this very different uh, sort of blueprint or prototype, um, a pseudo-sovereign prototype is called, because it has this since post-2007, post the separation of Palestinian uh, politics, in a sense, between Gaza and the West Bank. Gaza was afforded, I, I know it is seen in a negative light most of the time, and most of, you know, most of the time we're talking about like re and bringing unity together, but unfortunately, Sometimes unity or like bringing things together means settling for a lower bar uh, in, in a very important liberation experiment that you're going through. 
And I feel like this separation post-2007 afforded Gaza the space to actually reimagine and, re and see things related to politics, with economy, and things like food sovereignty. And you touch that and feel that in, you know, in a very different way. And I, and I feel like I would love to see politics going in the future in Palestine. Like I would love to see sort of a Gaza first kind of politics, actually reimagine the sort of ecosystem that we can operate within politically and economically by actually taking that blueprint in reverse and actually applying it in other spaces. So an example of this uh, was I, I had a chance to a friend to sit with uh, Dr. Mohammed Al-Awa, who was the agriculture minister uh, between 2006 and 2012. So it was basically a period when the Yeliti government was formed, Miller government was formed afterwards, and then basically the separation had been continued, basically pushing towards the dimension uh, that he was working on as an agriculture uh, agriculture minister, and uh, you will see, you see from the approach and the strategy that they put in place uh, what I would call Gaza first sort of approach um, a sort of resistance in mind sort of approach instead of basically continuously being attached to the Israeli ecosystem in agriculture. So you actually, even when you drive down Salah, the main road in Gaza and so on, you see big chunks of basically of that street being replaced with olive trees and palm trees while they had eucalyptus in the past, basically. And that was what the Israelis or even the British probably planted at one point when they came to Palestine. And I feel like whenever you see eucalyptus, you, you see foreigners in, in a lot of places, including, you know, Palestine, including the U.S. When I drive to I, L.A. and so on, they're like, wow. We have a whole eucalyptus <laughs> grove right outside my window that was planted by the European settlers uh, about, you know, 150 years ago that are still here and completely destroying the native landscape. I mean, yeah, yeah that's, that's what happened. So so you basically see even touch and feel like different systems and ecosystem. And what about when, when I sat with him, like he, he talked more about things like smaller scale, like watermelon economy, for example, when most of watermelons and it, it is a long history of watermelon, like Israelis finding a lot of watermelons and then deciding, oh, it consumes too much water and the citrus the same way. And then reducing their, you know, amount that amount they plant and then Palestinians kick in when, you know, when there's a reduction in the Israeli production. Uh, so it's like a back and forth. And, but most of the time, because Israel has a lot of subsidies and, you know, farmers enjoy a lot of subsidies, especially in water terms in Israel, like Palestinians cannot compete with, you know, these uh, cheaper conditions of production. So we, we end up, the watermelon that ends up in Gaza Strip or the West Bank ends up be, being uh, produced in bigger watermelon farms in Israel. So it was like one of the experiments and other experiments follows uh, onions and other things where, where basically they sort of created this plan of like, hey, let's let's see how can we replace the entirety of this you know uh, crop that we're importing um, by replacing other crops like tomatoes and things that we have a surplus of and since then 
you know, and he's of course like talks about all the other uh, intermediary, like there were smear campaigns saying, oh, these watermelons that are planted here, they're fed with sewage water or they're fed, you know, like where, where they're trying to affect like merchants that benefit from bringing these watermelons from Israel. They want to affect the Palestinian sort of uh, consumer behavior. Uh, but since 2006, 2007, I believe, till today, this has completely changed a sort of um, coordination that happened at the very top level, like from the ministry with farmers and to actually address market need uh, was a very successful approach and actually addressed a certain need like a cash crop and where farmers would need that cash to continue operating. Uh, and that wasn't the only policy that we see actually in real effect. Like we see the fisheries, you know, new fisheries, although because when, you know, uh, the limitation of the fishing space and so on that Palestinians have faced, there are fisheries that were created and so on to actually replace some of that demand or, you know, answer to some of that demand. And they're operating until today very successfully. Um, we see almost Gaza Strip in 2019 was able to, to produce, I think 4,200 tons of olive oil that basically completely covered the need in Gaza Strip. And that was almost 25%. And now they're at 25% of the production of olive oil in the entirety of the Palestinian areas. Like that's, to me, that's astonishing because uh, Gaza Strip just, is 6% in land and 6% of the Palestinian areas. And uh, it's a highly populated area too. So to actually be able to produce almost 25% of uh, 20 to 25% of the Palestinian, total Palestinian production is astonishing. Um, and that is actually a direct outcome of strategies. Uh, direct strategy was basically to plant a million um, olive trees uh, in, in Gaza Strip, plant almost 3 million uh, palm trees for date production in Gaza Strip. And you will see actually these patterns, and this is why I'm saying like the, the patterns, there are the, the, the palm tree, for example, uh, growth uh, in, in, in the West Bank follows the patterns that happen in Israel. So that's like the pre-2007 politics in the Palestinian Authority areas. So you'll find most of them planting majul dates, for example, for export. But in Gaza Strip, you'll find most of the palm trees that are planted, they're targeting the Ajwa market. So like making this paste, this paste from the date. So it's targeting actually the internal manufacturing market. And eventually that would be exported, but you would manufacture, the idea is to create or pull most of the supply chain internally to employ most people that you could, you know, employ and then end up with a product that you can sell outside, you know, or export. So the, the mentality or the idea, instead of just exporting the crop, and this has been like the sort of um, uh, the vegetable market where basically you're literally exporting water and that's that increases or participates in increasing the salinity of soil and so on um, and sending it outside but then but if you actually 
use these crafts and like extend the supply chain internally, it's a very different outcome that you're looking at. Uh, so food sovereignty to me looks like these efforts, looks like in Palestine, we really, we talk a lot about or criticize the Fayyad economy that was created post the second Intifada. I wish we talk more about the Agha economy, you know, it's very different economy, very different perspective, you know, of how um, the decisions and policies can be made uh, and you can actually control and figure out like how uh, to deal within, within a hostile uh, uh, surrounding, you know, even blockade uh, cannot stop you from actually operating. Um, and, and I can talk on and on. Actually, part of the things that I am that I always keep around and so on is this like strategy kind of flash it out every time I talk about this. <laughs> but basically, the strategy uh, of uh, the 2010 to 2020 strategy that they've created. And, That's like, from the Ministry about. of uh, Agriculture. Yeah, that was the Ministry of Agriculture and uh, Dr. Lava was part of uh, the head of the committee that created it. Um, and when you go through and you talk like talking about like resistance agriculture, talking about, you know, seeing agriculture from different perspectives, you know, even creating like the station of organic production for compost and so on to reduce the uh, the, the need of Israeli inputs and so on, because a huge part of the Palestinian agriculture is dependent on the, the technology, you know, and it's, it's funny that because always settlers, when they settler colonists say, like they depend a lot on technology in a sense, uh, uh, and like the US selling that green revolution sort of technology and the, Israelis selling the, you know, fertilizers, they're selling the, and, and yes, they do create or increase the yields that we get, but at the same time, you are, you are left with a bunch of environmental uh, crises that you need to deal with. Uh, and you can see that actually in agriculture in settlements in the West Bank, where they feel less inclined to, um, to deal with environmental problems and so on. So they, you know, the nitrification of the water table and other things become more severe in these contexts. Um, so yeah, food sovereignty really looks like uh, efforts like Dr. Aga has actually worked on. And um, yeah, I believe a lot of the smaller efforts that whether we see in the Western Malay, I feel like there's a small group of like highly uh, active group of people that try to work together and actually build from the bottom up a sort of an economy that could eventually become co-ops that work together uh, and you know operate to answer for the market needs and actually compete in the market uh, against you know crops and like heavily subsidized Israeli crops. But at the same time, you see the top-down approach in the Gaza side, like when, you know, uh, Dr. Eva was around and so on. And I honestly find both approaches viable and, you know, uh, really see the future in both directions, hopefully. Um, last year during 
the attacks on Gaza in May 2021. We saw um, Palestinians all over Palestine inside 48 and in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, and, and across the diaspora really rising up in what was called a unity intifada. Um, and you've, uh, we talked about this off air um, about, you know, kind of bringing that, uh, that energy um, and that strategy into um, viable uh, Palestine-based um, Palestine, you know, centered and Palestinian run agricultural economy. Um, you work with uh, a wheat mill in Jordan, for example. Um, can you talk about what, you know, what like a, 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 a Palestine, a unity economy could look like um, in order, you know, in order to, um, to, to, you know, grow the Palestinian economy in a way that um, Israel can't can't control or shut down, um, and and what that could look like. Right. Yeah. I thank you for asking this question. It's a very important part of like what we dream, you know, to accomplish eventually. Uh, the work that is in Jordan isn't is isn't basically this milling effort, uh, but it's more of a social initiative, let's say, that is trying to act in one phase as a, a social initiative that educates and talks and reproduces the traditions that we have instead of leaving that tradition to the market to produce, you know. Uh, and the other end is an agribusiness that tries to situate itself in a sort of, in a, in a supply chain where it actually could, uh, through these social objectives and so on, as well, like get to a result where people can plant more wheat and consume more of their locally produced wheat, uh, while shaping and reshaping sort of that uh, idea. And basically what got us, or at least some of the work that I'm in, or I was participating in, I'm in uh, got us working in Jordan and so on, we're like, if the idea of solidarity cannot flow in easily, a sort of like idea of solidarity for resistance and so on, doesn't easily today flow in uh, from outside to inside, we might as well like start working on these prototypes and blueprints uh, of um, uh, liberation sort of uh, blueprints that uh, embed themselves in economic forms and businesses and you know in ways that we actually operate and do these things uh, in other countries we could as Palestinians present ourselves and our work in Jordan Lebanon Egypt other places where these become these seeds for future you know so there you know what I mean like th that liberation work can be exported in that sense and uh that's the work in, in Jordan's like that creating of a blueprint that we could take and go somewhere. Uh, I'm hoping, I'm really hoping that the next station for us is somewhere in 48, where Palestinian and Nasser or in Haifa or in Yafa, like that we can that we can put together a sort of uh, enough resources to uh, for planting wheat 
for milling our own wheat and maybe for selling that wheat eventually in the West Bank or in Gaza or in uh, 48 areas. So this is what it really looks like. And this is where the ideas of like food sovereignty as um, thought of uh, when organizations come to Gaza and like talk about self-sufficiency and food sovereignty or go to West Bank and talk about these things. They completely cut out Palestinians in 48 and their need for resources and their need for participation in that ecosystem. Because as Palestinians, like we have, uh, there is trade that is happening. Most of the agricultural products uh, are either imported or exported to Israel. Uh, why isn't wheat, uh, you know, planned and imported and exported, uh, or like you know, making it through from forty-eight areas to Gaza and the West Bank? There's a ton of lands that are possible to actually plant and provide a good chunk of the of the wheat that is needed. And that sort of answer to the historic, because there is this fragmentation politically that is happening and so on. And I feel like if we weren't inspired by the unity and the problem and so on to actually create these unity economies, like I don't want to think, you know, I don't want an organization to come to Gaza and just have these piecemeal solutions to the problem of wheat by basically saying, oh, let's plant more of the lands that we plant uh, as vegetables is plant them with wheat. I would like them, I'd like to hear, you know, them saying like, oh, we'll develop a market in Gaza Strip and we'll develop uh, and move resources and lands into the hands of Palestinians in 48. And this is, it's important to highlight like the like settler colonial agriculture is settler colonialism. So at the base of it is it's based in geography and in land. And one of its main objectives is to keep these lands in the hands of the farmers uh, that usually have a specific profile. In Israel, it's like Zionist, you know, Jewish, white European farmers that, you know, should continue doing the farming in, uh, in the lands uh, that they have a hold of. And in the US, it's like white European settlers. And so you'll find most of the subsidies that go to, to agriculture and so on. Their real objective at the core is to keep agricultural lands in the hands of uh, settler farmers. So one of the main and very important objectives is to actually make a shift in land ownership because Palestinians in 48 were faced with displacement as much as Palestinians, you know, that, when, uh, that were expelled to Gaza or to the West Bank or outside of Palestine, but they were displaced internally. So a lot of the agricultural lands and so on, they're not no longer in their hands, but we could develop um, and there could be strategies that could uh, look like land back in Palestine too, in 48 areas, where, where basically Palestinian farmers can, or Palestinians can create agribusinesses that could plant wheat, barley, millet, and like our traditional food stuff. And they could create uh, flour through milling. That's like a second layer of investments to invest in the processing and the supply chain. <clears throat> where this becomes, you know, um, a source for the markets, because we already go walk in, in Gaza, like some of the areas and so on, if you go to a fancy store, um, like the Carefor, you'll find actually Haifa milled 
um, flowers that came from uh, Haifa grandmas or something. Like, you know, it's not uh, something, I, I would like that to be, you know, to become, I would, see, I would like to see flower that is milled by Palestinians in 48. So we have to bring in all conversations and resources that are poured into the food sovereignty conversation in Gaza and the West Bank, we have to bring Palestinians in 48 to be part of the conversation. So that actually extends and creates the resilience in an ecosystem that we need in the future. And that becomes more natural uh, to, uh, to talk about when we're talking about in, in the Palestine context because we will eventually, whether in Gaza or the West Bank or other, we'll be consuming wheat that is planted in ancestral land. So that, that ecosystem looks a lot more natural and realistic to me, although today in the environment of like um, organizations and activists and so on, it's completely overlooked. Mohamed Abu-Jayab, you are a farmer and activist uh, speaking to us from Utah, where you live and work, um, but originally from Gaza. If people want to learn more about the work that you do with Um Suleiman Farms in the West Bank um, and the wheat meal mill in Jordan, um, what's the best way to, to do that? Uh, they can always reach out to Um Suleiman Farm, uh, whether on Facebook or send us an email or uh, Instagram, whatever your choice uh, is um, still uh, part of the board in Muslim and Farm, and uh, or you could reach to al Baraki Wheat, uh, which is a project in Jordan uh, currently functioning uh, and run by Zikra Initiative folks. Uh, you know, just mentioned that you want to get in touch and I, there will be folks that will forward these uh you know these conversations uh because we are con like honestly we we are and i've mentioned this in previous conversations we're very under resourced when it comes to this work like the work of creating and recreating agricultural businesses that reimagine and recreate the culture around our food um and with doing that, not ignoring the ecologic and the economic and the social aspects of it. Um, so we will, and we are like doing projects that require uh, help, require investment, require uh, uplifting in, in many ways. Uh, so I hope if, if, you, if people listen to this, that actually they will find it in themselves to actually reach out and ask how they could help. And I will find you a ton of work together <laughs> if you're interested. That's great. We'll have all the links um, on the podcast post that accompanies this episode. Mohammed Abu Jayab, thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you so much, Noah. And thank you for the Electronic Intifada for all they do. Of course. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel, hit like, leave a comment, these engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.